Right, hello. We are, those of you who have been with us since the start of the year, we have decided to go book, through the book of Genesis this year. We have arrived at chapter 5. So if you want to get your Bibles open at chapter 5, I'm not going to read through it. I'll do what I did last week. You keep your Bibles open and then we'll refer to it as we go through. But let's just pray one more time. Lord, we love you. We thank you for your precious word. Uh, you've given it to us, Lord, for our benefits, not just to increase our knowledge of you, but to increase our love of you. And may that love be increased this morning as we consider this chapter together. In Jesus' name, amen. So we are in chapter five. So I wonder how many of us know the names of our forefathers. How far back can we go in our family tree until we run out of uh, names? I'll, I'll, I, I, won't, I wouldn't even get as far as my grandfather. How many of us know the names of our great-grandfathers or our great-great-grandfathers? How many generations do you think it takes to forget the names and faces of our relatives who've died. Will these children who've just gone out to group there, will they even remember our names, many of us, once we've gone? It's a cheery message this morning, as you can tell. But I wonder how many generations will it take for us to be forgotten by our family members who carry on our family line? And, and, and chapters like this, chapter 5, and, and other chapters in the Bible, they're really difficult for people to understand and to get a grip of. Even Christians find genealogies difficult. You open your Bible to a chapter like this, and you immediately see a list of unpronounceable names, and you think to yourself, nah, I'll just skip over to the next chapter and the good stuff, right? I mean, what the heck has any of these people got to do with any of us. Chapter 5 is a unique chapter in Genesis. Inside one chapter, we've got 1,656 years of human history. But it's here. It's in the Bible. And therefore, God wants us to read it and to understand it, doesn't he? God has not given us anything in the Bible that we don't need or that he thinks we don't need. These things were important for the Jews, particularly because they carried real significance for God's people. These lists of names helped them to remember their roots. And it's actually these lists of names help even the church today to remember where we have come from. So notice the language in verses 1 and 2. Look, verse 1, this is the book of the generations of Adam, when God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them, he blessed them, and he named them man. That is exactly almost the same language of Genesis 1, right? So despite the damage of the fall, despite all the stuff we, we, we read last week in chapter 4, God wants us to know in chapter 5 that human beings are still made in the image of God. However evil somebody is, however far a person drifts away from the Lord, there is still a part of them that is made in the image of God. 
you look at verse 3, we, we get a bit more detail behind the birth of Seth. We looked in chapter 4 last week at the godly seed and the seed of the serpent. And we get introduced to Seth, but verse 3 in chapter 5 gives us more detail. It says, when Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. Notice, please, the order of those words. Seth is born in the image of who? Of his father. He's born, Moses says, in the likeness of his earthly father. That means he is born a sinner. He is born both in the image of God and in the sinful image of man. He is born a rebel against the Lord. That's not how Adam was created. When we read of Adam's creation, he was born sinless and perfect, created to live in paradise. But Seth, on the other hand, is born into a world of murder and godlessness. Seth is born in the likeness of his sinful father into a world of death and judgment. And we, each of us, and our children, and our children's children, are born into this same world. Every single human being born since Adam and Eve is born with two images. The image of God, their heavenly creator, and the image of their earthly father, Adam. Remember last week we talked about two seeds. The world is divided into two seeds in Genesis 4. The seed of the woman, the seed of the serpent. And these two seeds have two very different destinies. And we looked at the the, 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 uh, we're going to look at the godly seed this morning in chapter 5, but we looked at the ungodly seed of chapter 4 last week, and we noticed something very interesting. If you scan through chapter 4, you'll see that the ungodly seed prospers. You read Genesis 4, you don't have to read it today, but read it after, and you look at what Cain and his descendants accomplish on earth. They build cities. They develop the first music. They begin all sorts of cultures. They develop industries, metalwork, all sorts of things. Didn't follow God, hated God, rebelled against the Lord, but they made an impact on the planet. And as we jump into chapter 5, we're going to learn about the godly seed. And here is the strange thing. What does it tell us about what they accomplished? You read chapter 5 and tell me one thing in that text you can find that the godly seed of Seth accomplished during their lifetimes. Because it's not there. All you get here is a list of names, how long they lived, and their children's names. That is it. Nothing else. So why don't we read the list of achievements of the godly seed, right? Surely the Bible would want to go, here are the bad people. They lived. They did this. They accomplished this. But here's God's people. They lived and they did better things, right? Well, that's not how it goes. Surely these people must have done something productive with their time on earth. I mean, they lived for donkey's years, these people. Why doesn't God show us how much better and cleverer were those that followed him and lived according to his word? And instead, you get nothing. They lived, they procreated, they died. So what's going on with that? 
Is that some sort of mistake? Did Moses forget to write it down, their job specs? No. I think Moses doesn't include this information because he wants us to understand one very simple, unchangeable truth. He wants us to walk away with one understanding of Genesis 5, and it's simply this. Death comes to all people regardless of who they are and what they achieve in life. Death comes to us all. That's the message of Genesis 5 as we get into it. Cain is clever and productive. He's pe- people build an empire. They, they build it without gods. They build it ignorant of the huge flood that is coming. They build it not knowing that everything on the face of the earth is about to be wiped out. They, they do it not knowing that every city, every great monument, every cultural achievement, everything they've ever done will be just smashed to bits and washed away by this massive catastrophic flood. It will obliterate the earth. It will change the world forever. Every human being not inside the ark will die. Every human accomplishment will be wiped out in a single devastating tweet. No one will be left alive to remember what anybody ever did with their life. The children of God and and the children of Cain and all their accomplishments died with them. The only reason we know anything about the children of Cain is because we know what we read in Genesis chapter 4. Death is the great equalizer. We can die with millions in the bank. We can die penniless under a bridge. The result is the same. Death comes to all people. This is what Paul tells us in Romans 5 verse 12. Therefore, listen to the language, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, Adam, and death through sin, so death spread to all men. This is what is happening now as we're getting in to chapter 5 of Genesis. Death is the price the human race must pay for its sin. Eight times in Genesis 5, you're going to read the words, and he died. So-and-so lived, so-and-so had children, and he died. So-and-so lived, so-and-so had children, they had these children, these children, these children, these children, these children, and he died. Died, 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 died. Time and again, Moses comes back to this depressing theme. He wants us to understand the sober reality of the world. The sentence of death hangs over every one of us in this building. Every one of us in this community, in this country, on our planets. Generations will come and go. They'll come, they'll go, they'll come, they'll go. Live, die, live, die, live, die. And we all are marching relentlessly to our own death, and we've no idea when the axe will fall. We may live to 100, we may live to 1, we may live to 20, we may live to 60. We do not No, and we try to ignore our impending doom, don't we? We'll fill it, we'll work too much. Pleasure, TV, drink, drugs, sex, a combination of anything. So we don't have to think about this massive, massive thing that is hanging over us. One day our hearts will stop beating, we will draw our last breath, and we will be gone. 
and anything you ever achieved in your life will mean absolutely nothing. Just in case you thought you were going to be cheered up this morning. Moses is clear what's going on. Another feature, and this is a, let me just sidetrack for a second, but I'll get back to the cheery subject of death in a minute. But one of the big questions that comes out of this chapter is, how, how do we explain the ages that people live to in Genesis chapter 5? If you notice in the text, there are three men in Genesis 5 who Moses records as living for over 900 years. It's not just Methuselah who lived over 900. There's three of them. How is that possible? Is the Bible wrong? Does when the Bible say years not mean years, but means something else completely? All sorts of theories. Some suggest uh, the following, and I believe this. Some suggest uh, the human race lived uh, longer because before the flood, there was a special canopy, and you'll get to this when we get to the flood. There was a special canopy in the sky that protected the earth from all of the ultraviolet rays and things which age our skin so quickly today. I don't have a much clue about the technicalities of it all, and I don't really care. Moses wants us to know this. People lived a long, long time, but they still died. Some of them lived a shorter time. They still died. You can get into the age and things later on in the text, okay? Didn't matter in Moses' day. If you're a seed of serpent, you're a seed of the woman, you'll die. Also remember when it comes to the age thing that Adam and Eve were perfect humans born in a perfect world. Their DNA was the purest and uh, strongest in history, okay? Not a thing wrong with them. Before the fall, there was no genetic illnesses. There's no weaknesses in our DNA to pass on to our children and their children because they were perfect. What's happened is over time, human DNA has not evolved, you know. Human, human DNA is devolving. It's getting worse. It's getting weaker. People are getting sicker. Let me tell you for a fact, nobody asked for a gluten-free pig in the ancient world. Is that gluten-free, that? Huh? You haven't got a vegan one, have you? I've got right intolerance to cow's milk. Camel's milk, ooh, it just sets me off. Let me get back to death. You want to go and investigate the ages of people? I'm saying there's answers out there, and I think they are very... Interesting. If you want to Google a website about this stuff, answersingenesis.org, and have a fun time. Here's Moses' point. I've said it once, I'll say it again. It doesn't matter whether we are Christians or not Christians. It doesn't matter whether we believe the word of God or we don't believe the word of God. Death comes to claim us all. Hebrews 9, verse 27 says this, It is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes the judgment. You see... Folks, it isn't death that's the scary thing. Death's not the problem. It's a problem. It's not our main problem. It's what comes after death that God is concerned with. Because after death 
comes the judgment. When we die, our gravestones, if we have them, will record the day of our birth, maybe a few lines about our loved ones, and the day we die. There'll be no other room on the stone for anything else. It won't say, here, die, here, dies, here lies Bob. You know, he worked for the post office. Or, you know, he was Sheila. She was a dinner lady. Well, it might be. It's strange, but I've never seen one of those. He was, he was, he was Rick. He died a billionaire. Irrelevance. Your gravestone won't tell us whether you were successful or not. Your gravestone won't say, this is a person, they worked loads of overtime. They studied, they, they chased their career. You'll be dead, we'll be dead. And you know what? Within a short space of time, even the future generations of our own family won't remember our names. You're all in death row. You realize that this morning, right? Every one of us in this building sits on death row. Doesn't matter how you try and forget about it. Doesn't matter if you deny it. Doesn't matter if you try and put it out of your mind. One day, that hearse... You ever seen the hearses around here passing by people's houses? Seen them a lot. People stop in the street and they're very respectful and they, and they bow like that. One day that hearse is going to stop at our house and it'll be our body inside it. That's the bad news of Genesis 5. However, as Benny says, give them the good news, son. There is good news in Genesis 5 if you look carefully. One man stands out Above all others, in verse 24, his name is Enoch, or verse 22, sorry, to 24. His name is Enoch. Enoch, by the way, means godly follower. And we read three things about Enoch, which I want us to very, very quickly think about, and I mean quickly. Firstly, verse 22 tells us that Enoch walked with gods. Then in verse 24, it tells us that one day he was not that's an unusual phrase. It means one day he was gone. He didn't die. He just disappeared. We'll get to that. Thirdly, we learn about Enoch, not from this text, but from another that he preached about the coming judgment. But let's look at these things. Firstly, what does it mean that he walked with God's? The phrase walking with God is only used a couple of times in the Bible here and with Noah in chapter 6 and verse 9. Walking with God was an expression that meant to obey someone, to fear someone, to serve. Walking means to walk in obedience, fear, and service. Actually, the literal translation of the text here is to Enoch walked with the gods. Not a god, the gods. That's what the human race was made for, to walk with God in intimate friendship. And if you look at the text, it tells us he was faithful to God for over 300 years. I mean, that's a long time to be faithful, isn't it? How faithful are we? We barely get to the door before we start breaking the rules. Faithful, walking with God in fear and obedience and in service. I walk with God is often a slow, drawn-out, painful process. Yet we must, we should be as Christians, making progress year on year. 
We should be walking, as each year goes by, closer and closer to God and showing signs of greater and greater personal holiness. Because if we're not making spiritual progress, if we're not continually walking with God, it's no, it's no use starting to walk with God and then wandering off. It's a process. You've got to keep, we've got to walk with God and continue to walk with God. If we're not making spiritual progress, then we need to take a long, hard look at ourselves. Are we really even Christians? People get offended at that question. I don't care. The Bible is clear. Test yourself to see if you're really in the faith. Now, do you test yourself? Well, what spiritual fruit have you got evidence for in your life? Hebrews 11, 5 to 6 says this of Enoch. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found, because God had taken him. Now, before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and he rewards those who seek him. And so whatever else Enoch was, he was a man of faith who persistently and consistently walked with God in fear and obedience and loving service. Then we have that phrase, don't we? One day he was not, which simply means, as Hebrews 11 says, that he was taken up. He didn't see death. God took him. (laughs) As you can imagine, there's endless debate about this view. Where did God take him? Where did he go like? Most people believe that he went to heaven to be with God. There are lots of unanswered questions about this. Lots of details left out. I think the real issue is we as Christians, like Enoch, can have the hope of eternal life if only we would walk faithfully with God. We may taste physical death, but if we walk with God in Christ, we will never face that eternal death the judgment of hell. Now, the third thing we learn is found in Jude. If you look at Jude chapter 1 and verses 14 to 16, we we read that not only was he a a man who walked with God, not only was he a man who was taken from God, we also learn in Jude 14 to 16 that he was a preacher. He was a preacher of righteousness and justice. Let's look at the verses, Jude 1, 14 through 16. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with 10,000 of his holy ones to execute judgment on all, to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed and in such an ungodly way. I mean, can we get any more ungodly in there? And all of the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sin- sinful desires. Their loud mouth boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. Enoch was a bit of a lad, by the way, wasn't he? He didn't take any prisoners. He called sin, sin. He didn't mess around. He called the ungodly, ungodly, malcontents. Gossip, sinners, boasters. We all know people like this. Oh, I just I think it's a lot of crap that oh, God in that the Bible. But yeah, yeah. Well, let's find out then. One day you will find out painfully 
Let's see how your boasting stands up when you get to go and meet your creator. You'll not be so big then. You'll not be so full of yourself then. There'll not be a hole big enough for you to go and hide in when you stand before God in his holy judgment. Enoch preached of a judgment against the wickedness of his generation. Three things he preached in that text. He says this, God will punish the wicked and ungodly who refuse to bow the knee. God will punish every ungodly deed we've ever done. God will punish every person who's ever spoken out against his name and denied him. That's a hard-hitting message. It's a hard-hitting message in his time and culture. And you know something? That message hasn't changed in our culture, has it? His message was about the coming judgment of the floods. That's what he was warning people about. How do we know he was preaching about the floods? Because of the name he gave to his son, Methuselah. Do you know what the name Methuselah means? <laughs> I mean, he dropped enough hints. The name Methuselah means, after him, after this son, it comes. Imagine you're such a mad preacher that you even name your son after the former judgment. Imagine naming your kid hell. This is my, you know, my son, Roger, and his name means hellfire will burn down on you. The guy was heavy. But his message is our message. Our job in this generation is to warn sinners of the coming judgment of God. It's to tell people, listen, you're not going to get away with this forever. Death is coming for all of us. And after that, judgment. And if you're not right with God in this life, you are in big trouble in the next. And all your smart talk and all your cockiness and all your boasting and all your pretending that you've got your life together will not matter one little bit in the face of God and his holy wrath. And we don't want you to. That's the message of the, of, of the church to the world. It's not ha-ha in your face. It's please, please don't take that route. Today, if you hear the voice of the Lord, please call upon him in repentance and faith. Walk with God. Stop walking your own path. Stop walking your own way. We all know what walking our own way often gets us, isn't it? Blind alleys, dead ends, pain. Walk with God, and he will make straight your path. Listen, if there's any of us as believers in this room straying from our walk with Jesus, you need to stop what you're doing and turn around immediately. Because here's what's going to happen. We're going to walk a little bit away, and we walk a little bit more away, and then a little bit more, until one day we turn around, and we don't see the Lord anymore. We don't see his people and they don't see us. We've turned so far from the Lord that there's no way back. But today, if you hear his voice, turn from your sin. Throw yourself on the mercy of God and he will forgive you and you can return back to walking in the right direction with God. God always gives us a way out. You can't go to the judgment of God and say, well, I never, heard the, I never heard about any of this. Well, you heard about it this morning. 
I didn't know. Well, I didn't know I was a sinner. I didn't know you were going to judge me. I didn't know you had to trust Jesus. Well, you know this morning what you have to do. I preached here for 16 years, and to the annoyance of some, I preached the same sermon probably every time for 16 years. Sin judgment, Jesus. Jesus says, come to me, come to me, all you are heavy laden, and I'll give you life. I want to give you death. The bottom line is this, I said it last week, I'll say it this week, Michael will say it next week. The path of Seth and the godly line, or the path of Cain and the ungodly line. Take a stand. We're all born on Cain's path. We're all born on the path to eternal damnation, but Jesus invites us to join us on the godly path to eternal glory. There is no other hope for us. There's no other escape route for us. Listen to Jesus. Again, this is Jesus, not me. John 11, 25 to 26, Jesus said to uh, to her, I'm the resurrection and the life. Those who believe in me, even though they die, will live. What's he saying? He's saying what Genesis 5 is saying. Yeah, you'll die. Yes, you'll physically go to the grave, but your soul will live on with me. Look what he says. He says, says, those who believe in me, even though they die, will live. Everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Here's his question. Do you believe this? Because that's what it boils down to. You've heard the truth. You've heard what we think. You've heard what the Bible teaches. You've heard what Jesus says. And he says, over to you, do you believe this? If you don't, carry on your way. God help you. If you do, get on your knees in repentance and faith, and God will forgive you. That's the good news. The good news is this. In Jesus, we have eternal spiritual life. In Jesus, death loses its sting. In Jesus, there is the hope of eternal rest with God. And it's only in Jesus. It's only in Jesus. We escape death no other way. We can put death off. We can try and delay death with medication and being hooked up to machines that keep our heart pumping, whatever. We can do all of these measures, but we cannot escape death. Let me leave the last word with Jesus, and I'm finishing with this. John 5, 24. Very truly, I tell you, this is Jesus, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me, He's saying, whoever listens to what I'm saying and believes in God, he says, he has eternal life and will not be judged. Why? Because he's crossed over from death to life. You've got two choices in life. Think to yourself, I'm going to take my licks on my own. Thanks. Or throw yourself on the mercy of Jesus and let him take that punishment for you. Life or death, it really is only all about that. Life or death. God help us. Amen.